I'm recording and recording video and stuff, but maybe we might not use the video. We'll see. And <laughs> um, by cosplaying, we are totally taking geek to a whole new level, throwing it out there. Well, I think that um, our cosplay might look pretty pathetic compared to most cosplayers. Yeah, no shit. I think we might actually just have to take real photos and then send them in, like yeah. outside of our offices, for instance. We really need to be outside for, for the cosplay to work. You are being used, thief in the shadows. You are only ever a means to an end. The coward Oaken Shield has weighed the value of your life and found it worth nothing. No. No, you're lying. What did he promise you? A share of the treasure? As if it was his to give. I will not part with a single coin, not one piece of it. My teeth are swords, my claws are spears, my wings are a hurricane. Welcome back to GC8. I'm Eric. I'm Rosie. And I'm Johanna. This week, we're going to jump into the second Hobbit film, The Desolation of Smog. But before we do that, what kind of media have you been consuming since last we talked? Um, yeah, I'm still making my way through the Orange is the New Black series with my daughter. <laughs> I've also started watching Raising Hope with my stepson i'm jealous of you guys that can watch these movies with kids because i don't have that opportunity well i was watching the hobbit trilogy with my son until he betrayed me we were watching <laughs> desolation of smog on a saturday night and planning to go into battle of five armies the next day sunday morning and he woke up at 5 30 a.m to start it on his own and <laughs> I came, came down and there were like 20 minutes left in the film. I was like, what the fuck? What a man? little jerk. <laughs> what a little jerk. Exactly. And so now I, I had to watch Battle of Five Armies by myself. Oh, man. My partner watched it with me. I was lucky. So my boyfriend watched most of the trilogy with me. So that, that was fun. But he had already seen it before. He's like, I saw it in the theater. And I'm like, well, good for you, because this is my first time watching it. <laughs> my partner is a resolute anti-fantasy person. Not, I mean, that's that's actually too harsh. But every every time he would walk in, he would, he would say, what? Wait, what? What's going on? And just <laughs> have, have this, and what's that? And, you know, pointing, that's a troll. And then he would see the same troll come by, but with a helmet. And he's like, well, what's that? And I'm like, it's a troll, but with a helmet on. What can I tell you? <laughs> it's time for correcting the record. So goblins versus orcs. Tolkien actually uses them interchangeably. Later fantasy novels and Dungeons and Dragons separates them. Now, I think it's important to remember that Tolkien was creating myth and legend for the UK, and he was a language professor. So he studied the languages of names of existing myths. And many of the stories of the little people 
the little people of Stonehenge. Um, <laughs> creatures began with uh, the letters G, sometimes pronounced H, and O and B. So that's where we get goblins, boggarts, hobbits, hobgoblins. Even the boogeyman comes from that B-O-G or H-O-B root form. So I don't know where the name orc came from. The etymology of orc must be interesting. I do remember hearing once that it does come from Middle English, but that's all I know. All of this to say they're interchangeable in Tolkien. (laughs) So... I was a little bit wrong, but not entirely, because I do think that my interpretation of goblins as sort of nocturnal and smaller and orcs being brutish and big is something that was definitely brought to the films or brought into play in the films. I have a problem. My memory is not what it once was, which caused me to get out my Tolkien companion and just to show you that I've been into this for a while it's inscribed 1979 with my first phone number and address in it so I've had this thing can we talk about how cool that is I mean that's pretty awesome hang on to your books forever (laughs) yes so I've had this since I was nine years old Mm -hmm. But something as basic as goblins versus orcs, I was fumbling around with it. So I was like, I need to get somebody else in here who is good with the lore. And I remembered this next person that I'm about to introduce. He had said something about the great romance between Arwen and Aragorn. And my comment to that was something about how I much prefer the Baron and Luthien story as a true tragic romance. And he conceded that point. He even mentioned at the time that, yes, Professor Tolkien had that inscribed on his tombstone. And I'm like, okay, I didn't even know that. So I got to get this guy in here. So he has degrees in geophysics and history, is an avid caver. And I also believe it's his birthday. Please welcome David Keim to the podcast. Hello, everyone. Uh, I, I honestly don't remember a post about Aragorn and Arwen. I, I do remember posting about the great unrequited love affair between Galadriel and Gandalf, going back to uh, the days before the sun and the moon in Valinor. But uh, uh, who knows? I could have posted something about Aragorn and Arwen, too. Let's jump into talking about The Hobbit and Unexpected Journey. But first, we got a background to the year 2013 by Rosie. Yes. 2013 was actually kind of a fun year to research because it was <laughs> it was the year of selfies and twerking. There were a lot of <laughs> that was the year that Miley Cyrus went on stage with um Okay, now of course the name escapes. It's the memory thing. Yeah. I know, it's the memory thing. Okay, Miley Cyrus was on stage and performed Blurred Lines with Robin Thicke. That's where she was twerking on stage and that brought forth hordes of viral images of people shaking their booties and having a good time and memes that said men at twerk, you know. <laughs> so, now I that was a fun year for social media. I I remember very well, you know, people discovered how to take selfies even Geraldo Rivera got in on it and his like topless selfie went viral that year 
Um, <laughs> Rosie, just... you pull out the most interesting facts about our I, past. <laughs> I know. I remember the dumbest things. It's like, oh, okay, I'm going to remember this for this year. That's the year twerking. Forget about the fact that, you know, there were some serious things that really happened this year. This may be the only time Professor Tolkien and twerking and topless Geraldo Rivera all came up <laughs> within minutes of each other. You're here in review. You're welcome. No, I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> I mean, this was an interesting year. This was the year that the United States paved the way for marriage equality. That happened in June. Edward Snowden kind of blew the top off of a mass uh, surveillance program by the U.S. government and basically fled the country and Russia offered him asylum. This was uh, the year of the Boston bombing. If you remember that tragedy, we've never forgotten it. <clears throat> the worst industrial disaster in the world happened in the Savar building. It collapsed and killed 1,134 people. That was also uh, an explosion of the fertilizer plant in Texas that killed hundreds. This was a year also where Oklahoma was hit by a huge tornado, killed about 24 people and injured 212. Pope Francis later became the first Latin Pope who also took to social media. He was the first Pope ever to go to social media and, and use Twitter. That was pretty cool. This was also the year of the George Zimmerman trial. And he was a Caucasian man who killed 17-year-old Trayvon Martin and was found not guilty. That was not the first, but that was kind of the beginning of several more demonstrations to come for the Black Lives Matter movement. You know, when we explore 2014 in the next episode, we'll learn more about that. Those were the most memorable things that happened in 2013. There it is. I don't have any more to say on that. <laughs> Only thing I'll chime in to say is it was actually a great year for cinema. 2013 had some awesome movies. It really did. Argo won Best Picture. Silver Linings Playbook came out that year. Mm -hmm. Life of Pi, Lincoln. Really great cinema on the Academy's list of nominees, which, you know, for the last couple of years, it sort of felt like they've been scraping the bottom of the barrel to find, you know, well, all right, what can we throw a nomination at? But 2013 was a year where it felt like all of them could have won. Yeah, you, you know, you're absolutely right. That was a great year for cinema. Okay, so what can you tell us about production notes here? So I decided to break up the production notes for each of these films into different categories. I spent a lot of time in our last podcast talking about the frame rate. So for this film, I want to talk about the casting. And I hope David will jump in a little bit here because I want to start by talking about Tariel and the creation of her character and the casting of Evangeline Lilly. Tariel, of course, is a character that doesn't actually show up in The Hobbit. There are really no women characters in The Hobbit at all. And Peter Jackson felt very strongly there should be one. And he also found ways to include Galadriel and to bring other women characters in, Bard's children, a number of good, interesting female characters there. But Tariel really stands out as the leading female role in the film. And she was cast primarily because she is a huge Lord of the Rings fan. Just 
diehard fan of the Hobbit and of the Wood Elves. Her whole dream was to become an elf, and even though she was close to retiring before this film came out after a very successful career on Lost, she came out of retirement in order to join this project. I'm really curious to hear what some of our panelists today, particularly David, have to say about the creation of this new character and whether it does justice to Tolkien's world. And then I'll jump in to share some other perspective on why Peter Jackson may have done this. I happen to agree with Peter Jackson's reasoning, but I'd love to hear from you first, David. Well, first I'll throw out, you know, in this discussion is also Legolas because he's also not in The Hobbit. But when you look into it, you would almost have to explain why he wasn't. He's Thranduil's son. He was alive during the time. He's just not mentioned in the text. So, But you have to assume he was at the battle, given what we know about him. The Hobbit, the book, doesn't even give Thranduil a name. He's just the elven king, and he's the only one that gets any sort of personality from the um, woodland realm. And so to flesh out some of those characters, flesh out some of those people in the woodland realm, I totally agree that that makes sense. When you look at Tolkien's literature, there may be not enough, but there are numerous instances of strong women in Tolkien's writing, often based off of his eventual wife. And it's interesting that the actress who went on to play Tolkien's wife in the Tolkien biography movie also auditioned for Arwen and auditioned for Tariel, but didn't get to play those, but Lily Collins uh, I'm talking about. So uh, I don't mind her inclusion at all. I don't mind that she's redheaded. Tolkien writes about redheaded elves in some of his writings that doesn't show up in the publications. I would say Tolkien might be a little bit aghast about a woman being a strong warrior, but uh, that doesn't bug me at all. If anything, everybody in, in the elfin worlds are out there fighting and doing the best they can, but he might have seen slightly more traditional uh, roles for the women elves, even, even the powerful ones like Galadriel and, and Luthien and, and um, uh, characters like that. What really bugs me about her is that Peter Jackson says, oh, Finally, I get to portray a sylvan elf, one of the three main races of elves in Middle-earth at this time. And we got to uh, um, portray the other two in the Lord of the Rings movie, and now I get to portray a sylvan elf. And Tariel's character is nothing like a sylvan elf. The sylvan elves are the most reclusive, the most that would not want to get involved in a war. They would be the ones that were just say, leave the men and the dwarves alone, let's just hide in our woods. And she's the opposite of that. So uh, what bugs me about her is not her presence, not her strength, not her abilities, but that uh, she's depicted as being a somewhat of a warmonger, which is not what a sylvan elf would be. And also, uh, it really bugs me that Thranduil is telling Legolas, oh, you could never marry a lowly sylvan elf. But Tolkien specifically writes that either Thranduil or his dad, or both, would have had wives who were sylvan elves. So that bugs me too. But uh, the actual character herself and her casting, I'm, I'm all for. Okay, I got to jump in here. The movie does point out or seems to suggest that Tariel is not your typical sylvan elf. But I have to say, Tariel is the first ma major character departure from Tolkien, and I'm okay with it. Although 12-year-old me would have railed at the, <laughs> this and and not because it departs from Tolkien. Uh, the Tariel Keeley love story because 
I remember I had a crush on a tall girl when I was 12 because all girls were taller than you when you when you're 12 years old because <laughs> girls just mature faster. And Unless you were in class with me, then I was still probably except the our same resident height. Hobbit here. But yeah. <laughs> but women never date men shorter than them. And what makes this especially <laughs> egregious is that. Evangeline Lilly's even hotter than Liv Tyler, right? She's like the head cheerleader dating the nerdy dwarf. That shit is pure fantasy more than talking dragons, okay? That <laughs> never happens. All well, right. I'm glad you brought up the love story because what's interesting, Evangeline Lilly, while they were creating this character, she only put one demand on the story, which was that it could not turn into a love triangle because she had been bored to death with the love triangles and lost. She'd gone through that. And they started off with the plan, okay, it's just going to be the love story with Keely. And she originally raised an eyebrow and then there's like, no, but he's hot. And she's like, oh, okay. But (laughs) that that made it believable to just to your point, Eric. But then once they saw on set the chemistry between Legolas and Keeley and the exchange glances and also just how it brought out the tension between the dwarves and the elves in general and helped enhance that area of conflict. We ended up with a love triangle anyway. So she grudgingly agreed to participate, but that was interestingly her one demand about that love story component. And at least it wasn't like a blatant in your face love triangle. It was kind of a low key love triangle. Because it was very much like those two were into each other, and the other guy was kind of like, "Hi, I'm over here." So, <laughs> a love affair between an elf and a dwarf. It just, uh. all right. Anyway, the <laughs> anything else about the casting you want to tell us? Yes. So I I also want to talk about Benedict Cumberbatch as the voice of Smaug, which I went into this research project assuming that Peter Jackson had seen Sherlock, knew that Benedict and Martin Freeman had great chemistry together and that fans would be really excited about this. But no, actually, the casting for this part happened two or three years before the film. Sherlock wasn't necessarily a huge worldwide sensation yet. Peter Jackson hadn't seen any of it. And he cast Benedict Cumberbatch based upon his amazing voice, which Peter Jackson felt worked for the dragon role. Cumberbatch actually turns out to be a pretty big fan of Tolkien himself. And also Cumberbatch came with a similar approach that Jackson did of wanting to make this a memorable dragon part that was unique and wouldn't just fall into the background with all of the other dragons that we've seen on screen. And Cumberbatch came at the character thinking of Smaug as a brilliant psychopath almost like a Hannibal Lecter dragon, if you could picture that. And I think he succeeded at making the character memorable, and also the fact that he shows up as the voice of the necromancer as well allows a lot of echoes of this character to reverberate across all three films in the trilogy. So I'll I'll turn it back over to you, Eric. Is it time for us to go to the lobby and get a snack? It is time to go to the lobby, but not for a snack. We've talked about how these films are epically long and deserve entire meals before each one. You don't want to have to interrupt your viewing to go eat. So we do a meal each time. We had breakfast last time, and following the Hobbit tradition, it is now time for second breakfast. 
Yes. <laughs> my cat was very fond of second breakfast. Um, so I got this recipe today from the unexpected cookbook. Now there are a couple of books by that title. This is the one by Austin Post writer Chris Rachel Osland. I think is how you say her name. She was getting her master's in history at the University of Cincinnati at the same time I was. And I'll put a link to the book in the show notes. I have to confess that this is the first recipe that I have done on this show that I didn't actually make myself. And that's because I was so busy with everything else going on in my life. But I did eat this. I got it from a local restaurant that makes these mushroom, beef, and onion hand pies. So I went to a local piery, I guess. I What do you call that? Uh, a pie monger? Would you... Pastitery? I don't know. <laughs> a pie monger? Yeah. A, a, but these aren't pies like we normally think of pies or sweet desserts here in the U.S. This is like meat pies. And the crust is super thick. It's thick so that you can stick it in your rucksack and go off adventuring. So this is the recipe... Uh, from an unexpected cookbook for mushroom, beef, and onion hand pies. Okay, so you're going to need a tablespoon of butter, or you can use bacon grease or cooking oil, a large yellow onion diced, a pint of mushrooms, six garlic cloves minced, one and a half teaspoons of salt, one teaspoon ground black pepper, three and a half teaspoons paprika, a third teaspoon fennel seed, one teaspoon savory or rubbed sage, and one teaspoon of rosemary. First, you put the butter in the pan and you sweat the onions and the garlic. And once you've done that, you mix in the spices, basically everything except your meat. And you put in the mushrooms and let them soften until you get this nice stew of stuff once that's all soft the onions are slightly translucent and all that you set it aside in a bowl you remove it from the heat and then you cook your meat until it's browned you can use beef pork mutton or a mix whatever you can even use veggie crumbles if you're you want to do a vegan version of this then once that's browned you put the mushroom mixture back into it just stir it all together then you let it cool Meanwhile, you roll out your pastry crust. You do that the same way you do any other kind of pie crust. You create your pie crust, except you want to make it thicker. Basically, it's got to stand up to, you know, being carried around. So uh, you want it to be a quarter inch to an eighth of an inch thick. And then you want to take a cookie cutter. Or if you have one of those things for making eggs on the griddle, that's the perfect size to punch these circles out and then you, you stuff the little circles with the mixture, put another circle on top and crimp it closed with a fork. Once you get all of those, you arrange them on a cookie sheet. You bake them at 375 Fahrenheit, which is 190 centigrade for 20 to 25 minutes or until they're golden brown. Take them out, put them on a cooling rack and then I would wrap them in wax paper or something and you throw them in your backpack and you're good to go. You have your meat pies for the trail, for the journey. 
There we go. I hope you guys like that one better than last week's beans on toast. <laughs> much better. <laughs> yeah, much better. It kind of reminds me of um, these Natchitoches meat pies my ex-husband used to make. It was a, a Cajun recipe that he found in Emeril Lagasse's book. Um, but they were really good. We used to have people come over and he'd make these meat pies and fry them up. And they were amazing. It was very similar. I mean, different spices, obviously, and it was fried instead of baked, but I'm sure you probably could do a baked version, but they were amazing. Yeah, I bet every culture has some version of the meat pie. My, they have to, yeah. My dad grew up in Brazil, and so we had a lot of Brazilian recipes in the family, among them pastéis, which very similar. Yeah, I'll just chime in and say that the um, Eastern European miners in uh, Michigan and uh, Wisconsin copper miners uh, used meat pies for lunch. So they, and this is in keeping with the idea of going to the Lonely Mountain. Uh, <laughs> that would be their lunches in the mines they would take with them and keep them going, uh, digging for the copper all day long. Have you ever taken meat pies into a cave? No, I have not. <laughs> Closest is a ham and cheese sandwich. <laughs> <laughs> but it would work. It would work. Might get smashed. That would be the issue. Now that we've had our meal of meat pies, it's time to get into the movie itself. The Desolation of Smog picks up right after the unexpected journey. But way away from the Lonely Mountain, we go back to Bree, the town on the border of the Shire, which is kind of interesting in Tolkien's works because it's one of the only places you see a mingling of the different races. And we have Gandalf and Thorin, Basically, it's a flashback scene to how everything got started. And Rosie, I think you had a little problem with this. I thought that it was a flashback scene, but I wasn't completely sure. I had messaged Eric and Joanna yesterday, and I was like, okay, I don't understand. And Eric's like, save the conversation for the show. So I say, I'm, this is me saving the conversation for the show. But when it, when it started out, I'm like, wait a minute, when they've already had this conversation... Is this different because it didn't seem like the party scene when all the dwarves just showed up at Bilbo's house like, hey, we're here. You're joining us. Okay, great. <laughs> I really kind of wish they would have added a little bit of that in for the people that had seen the unexpected journey beforehand because that was a very confusing moment. And I swear to God, I spent like the first third of the movie wondering what the hell was going on. And I, even though I knew what was going on, I still spent a third of the movie trying to figure out, like, I was completely confused on the timeline. You know, not from the movie-making perspective, but from Lord of the Rings text, there's a miniature version of this uh, after the War of the Ring and Lord of the Rings, and then in the appendices, a larger version of Gandalf's meeting with Thorin. So uh, this, this scene is from Tolkien's text, and it is another example, or I'm sorry, watching it in this order, it is the first example of seeing Gandalf as the chess master trying to move pieces around for the uh, coming war that he knows will eventually happen. In that way, I like it. It is from the text. It is showing Gandalf as the strategist, but it could be jarring to people that maybe are jumping into it for the first time. We cut back to them still on the run from the orcs that they had managed to escape from, from the mountain, but Azog is still close behind. They're not out of the woods yet, literally. 
and um, and they make a run for Bayorn's house, which I was reading up on how Bayorn became a bigger part of the Hobbit movies, and that all of the Swedish fans were extremely excited about Bayorn. It was a delightful surprise to find here, but I didn't remember him from the book nearly as much as I thought I would when I saw it realized in the movie. I was like, why isn't this one of my favorite parts of the book? This guy seems great. This is exactly why David's here, because when I saw The Fellowship, I was disappointed that the werebear wasn't in it. This is an example of my memory being incorrect. Bayorn appears in The Hobbit, not The Fellowship of the Ring. And I, I really liked the Bayorn character and was glad to see that it, he finally appeared in something. I could do without Tom Bombadil in The Fellowship. <laughs> But I could not do without my werebear. Yeah, Baron's actually a pretty big part of the Hobbit book. I don't know that he's described quite as scary as Jackson makes him out to be, but he's certainly there. And I think the depiction, particularly in the extended edition of the movie, is fairly accurate to the book, although he is at home when the Gandalf and the dwarves arrive. They don't break in and then uh, explain their situation to him later. That's the only like adaptation there. The whole part from Bayorn through the Mirkwood Forest is just riddled with callbacks to other Celtic, Scandinavian, Germanic, European fairy tales and myths that maybe don't have a relation to Middle-earth as Tolkien's larger lifetime writing project. And this is a result of him basically writing the story to tell to his children. And there are several examples of Tolkien's literature where this is the case. And he peppers in references to Middle-earth in his children's works but with no intention of having it be part of the bigger Middle-earth story. He's just using it for color and background. Then when The Hobbit gets pulled into his larger Middle-earth story, when he's writing Lord of the Rings, he has to try and account for some of those things. He might go back in and put other things in about Bayarn's people in other places, but it is more retconning than it is actual intentional. It's more, hey, here's something from another myth that I can pepper into this children's story, and then, oh no, now it's part of my larger Middle-earth story. What do I do with these people that don't really fit in with the Middle-earth story? David, you're just joining us, so you don't know that... <laughs> Johanna and Rosie. Now, we didn't talk about it so much with Meet the Feebles, although it was there, but we did definitely talk about it when we talked about The Mandalorian. They have a thing about giant spiders, all right? <laughs> These two are really creeped out by giant spiders. Is there any mythological antecedent to Tolkien's giant spiders that you know of? Not that I've read. I've read that one of his, he included the spiders in The Hobbit because one of his sons, Michael, was very afraid of spiders and he wanted to give his son a good scare in that sequence. Now, in his earlier mythology, the like kind of er evil spider, Ungoliant, I don't know if I'm saying it. Ungoliant, yeah. All, all these scary spiders in The Hobbit and Lord of the Rings are supposed to be her children or grandchildren of some variety. So spiders do appear in his work, but I, I'm not aware of a straw. I'm, I'm, I'm sure somebody could go out and dig up something. Uh, but other than trying to scare his son, I don't know why they show up in The Hobbit. Uh, but spiders are a part of Middle-earth lore from very first tales. Is this Shelob or is Shelob the giant spider in the Lord of the Rings. She loves in Lord of the Rings. Okay. So we don't know the name of this giant spider. 
No, it's just the spiders of Mirkwood, yeah. I found it very interesting that there's like a genealogy of the spiders. Like this is how like detailed <laughs> Tolkien got where it's like, okay, this is Ungolian's child, Shelob. You know? Okay. Anyway. So, all right. While we're talking about the spiders and Mirkwood, this is one of the things that I really liked about the film and I'm hoping David will remind us whether this shows up in the book or not. But the fact that when Bilbo puts on the ring and then he can hear the spiders talk makes a very clear link between the spiders and evil, which I liked that it was done very transparently because I feel like there are elements of Tolkien's work where he imbues certain kinds of creatures or certain elements of nature as being inherently evil, which my inner tree hugger just like wants to wants to resist this idea that any part of nature could be inherently evil, even though I hate spiders. <laughs> so, so what I liked is that that dialogue that Bilbo's over to he, able to overhear clearly links the spiders to Mordor and to the evil source. But I couldn't remember whether in the book he can hear that dialogue and whether that's directly from the text. Yeah, of course, when The Hobbit was written, the ring was was just a magic ring that could conveniently give Bilbo powers whenever he needed them, whatever he needed them to be. Uh, it wasn't some larger manifestation of evil itself. But um, uh, yes, he could he could hear the spider language. And in I, I'm not sure if this happens in The Hobbit, but in Lord of the Rings, Sam can understand orc language. And so it, it does provide translations, at least with evil characters. That's a good observation. I, I'd have to Think about, does the ring translate good characters? But why would you be, have it on? <laughs> well, the, the ring itself has an inscription in black speech on it. And we know that the orcs speak black speech. Yeah. I don't know if the spiders have their own language or if they also speak black speech. I don't know. So maybe it just translates black speech. It's like the babble fish of rings. When I noticed that he could hear the spiders when he had the ring on, and then he started later speaking with the dragon with the ring on because the dragon could sense him knew that he was there but couldn't see him at first i thought oh okay so the ring is is interpreting for him he can understand the dragon but then later the dragon was talking to everybody and i was like oh okay it's like that <laughs> all right then no the dragon you know. was just a very sophisticated <laughs> dragon that, yes that's... very sophisticated yes <laughs> yes which right, we'll get to the dragon later though yeah <laughs> I want to address this idea of certain animals being inherently evil. So I don't know if it's that per se, but there's definitely a cultural aspect to this. We talk about dog people and cat people. Cats tend to be more better treated in the Eastern world. And dogs are looked on as dirty and, you know, kind of looked down upon. I think there's some point in the Quran where Muhammad actually uh, pets a cat or something and, and cats are, are, are sort of revered. In the West, it tends to be the other way, particularly in Tolkien's time, dogs were considered. So they have like dogs as pet, like Farmer Maggot sticks his hounds on the hobbits when they try to steal his mushrooms and stuff like that. But cats are often portrayed as 
evil or whatever in Tolkien's works, particularly in the Silmarillion, there are references to giant cats like panthers. Also, if you remember Sauron's eye, which we see throughout all of these movies, even in the Hobbit movies here, they, they show it, even though it doesn't appear in the books, is a cat eye. Mm-hmm. Or whenever you hear about cats, it tends to denote something bad in Tolkien. Peter Jackson even foreshadows this in this movie way back in the first scene when they're in the pub in Bree, when right before we see that there are these unsavory characters who might be trying to take out Thor and we see a black cat. Mm-hmm. I just thought that was interesting. Now, spiders is kind of more universal. We've mentioned a couple of movies where spiders have been like considered an evil thing, which is too bad because I kind of like spiders. But then, of course, we have this interesting moment with the baby spider where we first see the ring turning on Bilbo or pushing him into a direction he doesn't want to go. When he's in the passage with Gollum in the first chapter of the film, he's able to fight that impulse and able to still maintain his sense of pity and mercy. And we see in this second encounter with the spider that that empathy doesn't extend. That's another interesting component of the relationship between the sentient characters. I'm not going to say human, that's not the right word, but the humanoid characters and the not humanoid characters, the the spiders and... Poor Schmeagel. No, um, <laughs> I think that, that... I'm not sure I'm going to defer to David on this one, but I think Philippa Boyens and possibly Guillermo del Toro, the people that had a hand in writing the screenplay for this, wanted to remind people that because I don't think there's that hesitation when it comes to or that that question about mercy to the spiders in the book. No, and, and that scene that you're talking about, which is one of my favorite in the movie, isn't in the book at all in, in that way. But I do think it's a really good reminder of what the ring is and how it has the chance to corrupt even the, the best of us to throw that in there, I think is really good. Tolkien does describe all creatures of evil being attracted to the ring with the purpose of eventually getting it back to Sauron. This is jumping the gun, but in the Fellowship of the Ring, there's a similar scene where like all the gross gooey centipedes come out and start looking for the ring. So this is similar to that. Those things aren't in any of the books, but definitely the spiders here are agents of evil and they would be attracted to the ring as well. I want to talk about how cringy I got as soon as he flicked that spider web. (laughs) This is one of the differences between making The Hobbit first versus later and having it to act as a prequel to The Lord of the Rings instead of making The Hobbit the book. Putting in the corrupting influence of The Ring uh, is important since this movie is actually produced after Lord of the Rings and you're trying to build in that prequel aspect to it as well. In this, we talked about how with these movies, both these two trilogies, there is a lot of landscape porn. New Zealand's perfect for it because it has all these different environments that they could film in. But what we haven't talked about as much is digital landscapes. And the scene where Bilbo climbs to the top of the trees and he's looking out over the forest, which is sort of this... It looks like fall colors, which we know it's not because they haven't reached Durin's day yet, right? But that scene, it reminded me more than anything of some of the landscapes we saw in The Lovely Bones. Yes. Did anyone else think that? Yeah, the autumn forest scape. Yeah. 
the area of the Hobbit that I had the clearest mental picture of when reading it. This elf kingdom in the woods that was not Rivendell. It was this like other darker, more insular, like the elves were mean, you know, just like, like it was, it was such a great scene in my head to hold on to as a kid. The juxtaposition of Rivendell where everything was beautiful and peaceful and the elves were enlightened and they were looking towards the future and looking outward. And then you have this elf kingdom here that is the opposite. And the diversity of elven culture represented in The Hobbit is really cool. And I think Lee Pace does an excellent job at Thranduil. As a character who doesn't even have a name in The Hobbit, he makes this guy someone that you're both frightened of and want to strangle at the same time. <laughs> we may have to just talk about Lake Town in, in the next episode since it's so prominently featured in the final chapter. But the barrel scene is, I think, still one of the best battle set pieces on screen ever. They shot it over four days in three separate rivers and a huge soundstage where they basically built a theme park ride. And anybody watching this seven minute sequence can't help but think they want there to be a seven minute theme park ride where you get to be in the barrel and do everything and sign a waiver for saying, if I drown, I won't blame <laughs> New Line Cinema. They ran tons of simulations on the waterfalls to create that splash of the barrel down into the water. And then for the battles with the orcs, basically rendered a whole video game CGI version of this scene and then slowly layered the textures and the effects on. But the amount of work that went into these seven minutes, damn. <laughs> that was really impressive. And, and I couldn't help but think myself that they were just kind of leading up to promote a theme park ride <laughs> when i saw it i was like oh this would be epic like you know this is this will be better than splash mountain you know <laughs> but that was a that was an awesome scene they really did a great job with that i loved every minute of that i really love that scene too except i hate the bouncing bombor barrel battling uh scene piece of it but i have to say when i watched this with uh, my nephews a couple years ago that was their favorite part of the whole movie. So I, I guess you have to attract uh, various audiences there. Yeah, there are certainly areas of silliness throughout the film around action. And the scene with Bombor, I, I agree. Sometimes when I watch it, it plays as like, this is over the top. This is, this is you know, trying to give it to us too easy. And then other times it feels like pure comic genius. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I want to get to a nitpick I have. They get to the Lonely Mountain and... We get flashbacks to Erebor in its greatest times, okay? Which I love the idea of Erebor. It's what hooked me on World of Warcraft because Ironforge, anyone who's played World of Warcraft will immediately recognize Ironforge as Erebor. But what I want to know is they, they get there and they start firing up the forges and stuff like that. What the hell fuels the Dwarven Forges? Like, what, what are they using for fuel and who gathered it and when? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, is there coal in the mountain too? Is that is that something we, we don't see? <laughs> for the massive scale of these forges, they're going to need some pretty powerful uh, fuel. And they don't have magic, really. They don't have a wizard there with them. They, you know, 
I don't get it. Anyway, that's my that's my nitpick about this. And it's easy to overlook in the, the book because they never really do that, you know. But in this, I'm like, wait a minute. And I know we're going to save most of Lake Town for next episode, but I do have to mention it because it happens in this film. Testicle eating and dwarves hiding in toilets. Okay, now do you guys recognize this Peter Jackson? Do you guys recognize this Peter Jackson? <laughs> yes. Yes, fine. Okay. Fables returns. <laughs> I I I at least get a concession there that there is a throwback here to the Peter Jackson of old who we know from Meet the Feebles and Bad Taste and things like that. I would also say that one thing that's abundantly clear from watching Meet the Feebles is that Peter Jackson has an incredible imagination. And one of the things that the new technology he's using in these films demonstrates is that when he's given the chance, that imagination really can run wild. And uh, I did a little research on some of the technology for the scene with the dragon, which feels and looks real, even though almost none of it is. And what Peter Jackson said about this new technology is that anything you can imagine can now be put on film, which is interesting because the responsibility becomes storytelling again. And I think you really see that, especially in the last 20 minutes of the film, in the dialogue with Smaug, which is a huge pivotal moment in the story of The Hobbit, and that the storytelling really comes through more than how impressive the dragon is rendered in 3D. Although, cool little side technical thing, Peter Jackson shot that scene himself using a handheld camera, and he did it on a motion capture stage in a digital projection space. So they rendered Smog there for him and then captured his camera movements so that when they did the full CGI rendering, it felt like a documentary filmmaker there capturing it, or like a war photographer actually seeing the dragon and Bilbo interacting rather than a painter filling in what they imagined it would be. We have come a long way from the days of Peter Jackson running through the grass trying to emulate a war photographer in Frogs of War. <laughs> That's a that's a truest statement of the show right there. <laughs> as much as I want to go on, there's more stuff to talk about Lake Town. There's more stuff to talk about the dragon and stuff like that. But we will save that for our next episode. I always say like and subscribe, but it's no longer subscribing on most podcasts. It's now called following. So on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcast, follow us, like us, give us a, uh, a good review. You can also write to us at our email address, gc8podcast at gmail.com. That's the letter G, letter C, number eight, podcast, all one word, at gmail.com. Until next time, this is Eric. This is Rosie. This is Johanna. And this is David Kime. Signing off. Um... I, I don't have a, a ton more notes on this because I spent a lot of time cooking. <laughs> <laughs>